KBLA Talk 1580. So pleased to welcome into the space the executive director of the Black Health Network. Spent some time before that working with LifeServe Youth Foundation and as a project director for Susan G. Komen. Rhonda M. Smith, welcome. Thank you very much for having me this morning. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Let's start with the basic. Basic, what is the Black Health Network? What do you all do? Yeah, so the California Black Health Network is the only statewide organization that works to advance health equity for all black Californians. That includes African Americans as well as black immigrants. So we do outreach, education, policy, and advocacy, as well as programmatic work to close the gap in health disparities that, unfortunately, black Californians suffer from, more so than any other population of people. Yeah. You say, you're saying black Californians specifically have a wider disparity. That is correct. Um, Not just in California, but unfortunately, black Americans across the country are at the top of the list when it comes to the disproportionate number of people dying and also dealing with different diseases. You know, I sometimes wonder, Rhonda Smith, if that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We hear so much about how we're leading in AIDS and high blood pressure and diabetes, etc., and then we worry ourselves and we kind of feel like there's nothing we can do about it and it becomes a cycle. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I talk about, uh, I'll start by talking about the good, bad, and the ugly of COVID because I think COVID really put a spotlight on the issue of health disparities that those of us in the business, so to speak, have known for decades. Um, but I think the most important thing that COVID did do was kick the door open to really have a conversation about what I've often referred to as the big elephant in the room, and that is the impact of racism and racial bias on the health and well-being of black and brown people. And so at the root of it all, you know, we have to think about the systemic and structural racism that exists in this country and how that translates into how people are treated in the healthcare system and what their experience has been. Um, that often leads to outcome. And one good example of that is um, medical algorithms. You know, there are race-based adjustments made in medical algorithms that drive decision-making for patient care that leads to a different decision for a black or brown woman compared to a white woman facing the same condition if, if for her pregnancy. So when you talk about a medical algorithm, is that the same issue as, say, facial recognition technology, where the implicit bias of the programmer, the person building the AI, um, is reflected in the actual technology, or is this something different? It's similar. I think in the case of AI in the situation that you just described is, like, you know, what goes into a system is related to the quality of the outcome of that system. And if you're not incorporating diversity, right, in the beginning in this case, then it's not going to recognize diversity when the product is done. Um, it's kind of the opposite when it comes to medical algorithms. There is intention, greater intentionality when we look at what happens and what drives decision-making for patient care and medical algorithms, there is definitely a race-based adjustment factor um, in those situations. 
Mm. That's a bit more intentional, I would say. And so we hear, I hear what you're saying about black Americans having health disparities. And we have had a lot of conversation recently, national conversation about maternal health outcomes. But mm-hmm. does that do the same thing as COVID where it makes us look at the entire system? Or is it, again, I worry about this fatalistic thing like, oh, we're cursed. There's something wrong with us or it's our fault. So therefore, you know, we're doomed. Yeah. yeah well, you know, even in medical school, it's unfortunate that still today, uh, you know, biases are taught and, and as part of the medical school curriculum. Still the fact that, or not the fact, but still the belief that black people can tolerate more pain, more pain than anyone else, that we know that is not true. We're all human beings and we bleed the same, we have the same organs. And, you know, feeling pain may vary by individual, but definitely is not a race-based thing. So, again, you know, we have to look at some of the root causes of health disparities. Um, and one example still is going back and seeing and understanding what is still being taught in the medical school curriculum. So, unfortunately, by the time a provider gets into a clinical setting, it's a bit too late. So part of the work that we do is trying to go further upstream and addressing some of the root causes of health disparities and health inequities, this being one example. And social determinants of health is another factor that also impacts the health and well-being and health outcomes of uh, black Americans and black Californians, which is the reason why you hear often that one person's zip code is often a determining factor of not only their quality of life, but their length of life, which is totally unfortunate, but also is related to the social determinants of health. I think I heard someone on Tavis Smiley say, talking about the fact that your zip code should not be your destiny. And there are so many layers to it. Um, I know part of it, some of it is our responsibility. We've got to eat better. We've got to exercise more. We have to change our culture around health. But some of it is, and I'm going to say a lot of it, is based on the cumulative effect of decades and decades of these disparities in care, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes, but we also, when we talk about the built environment, um, you know, some of that goes back to redlining. We know what happened. It's not just about home ownership. It's about what uh, conditions are created based on the result of that. And we know that um, when we look at environmental factors, and I heard the uh, happy to hear about environmental justice as I was waiting to join you today and bringing that issue to the forefront in terms of how that really impacts our community's health and well-being, too. So the built environment in which people live in um, plays a role from an environmental standpoint. Uh, yes, you know, there are most of the conditions that we deal with are chronic conditions which are preventable, and some of that stems from, you know, nutrition, healthy lifestyle, and physical activity. But when you live in a place that we, you know, we often refer to as a food desert, meaning you don't have access to fresh foods, um, whether it's a Whole Foods um, or a, even a Trader Joe's, then access to some of the basic needs are not necessarily there and available in those communities. Mm. 
Pastor Q was on earlier in the show, and he mentioned a book about weathering, this concept of weathering. Talk to me about that and what role it plays in the black health challenge, if you will. Yes. So if you can just imagine what the environment has done to, say, some of the coastlines and beaches, not just here in California, but in other parts of the world, too. And so if you think about the erosion, that's a result of the weather and weathering, constant um, constant uh, impact, uh, negative impacts of the environment are slowly eroding away, you know, the integrity of our beaches and coastlines. So when you think about weathering and how it applies to the black community and individuals, it's the constant beating and tearing away and all the stress that, you know, we deal with on a daily basis. And we know how stress impacts health and and well-being. You know, uh, if we really think about it, you know, stress is the number one killer. I know heart disease is also at the top of the list, but if you look at some of the precursors that um, contribute to heart disease, even obesity and some other factors, I mean, stress plays a definite role in um, in the dis-ease that we experience in our bodies and how that manifests. Um, and even thinking about intergenerational trauma and the stress and how that impacts our genetic makeup is also part of that process. We're talking with Rhonda M. Smith. She is the executive director of the California Black Health Network. If you have a question or some conversation, some observations, you are welcome into this conversation, 800-920-1580. When we come forward, I want to talk about breast cancer. It's a big one that is hitting black women in ways that no one else is dealing with. And I want to talk about not just what the outlook is, but what we can do about it. That's next on KBLA Talk 1580. Happy Kwanzaa from unapologetically progressive KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. So pleased to be in conversation with Rhonda M. Smith. She's the executive director of the California Black Health Network. If you would just lay out where we are with black women and breast cancer, I have known several women in my own life um, who were hit with this disease. And what I've learned is that black women often have more fatal outcomes and get more aggressive forms of this illness. You could kind of give us an overview on where we are now with black women and breast cancer. Sure, thank you. So I'm happy to report that I am a 15-year breast cancer survivor, so wow. there is hope. Um, yes, so, um, but in general, what we see is that there's more parity when we talk about or think about the incidence rate or the rate of diagnosis of breast cancer in black women. Unfortunately, when we look at outcomes or the survival rate, we're 45% more likely to die from breast cancer compared to white women. And so there are lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, early detection is definitely key. Um, I was detected early, stage one, and was very proactive um, in responding to my diagnosis. So there is hope, and, you know, you can also survive breast cancer, especially if there is an early diagnosis. So one of the things that is particularly interesting when we talk about black women and breast cancer is the fact that Black women, especially women under 40, are more often diagnosed with what's called triple negative breast cancer. 
And that is when there's three hormone receptor sites when we talk about breast cancer, and that's PR positive, ER positive, and HER2. So if you're, you could either be positive or negative on either one of those three. If you're negative on all three, that is called triple negative. And triple negative breast cancer is more difficult to treat because the majority of therapies that are out there are more targeted for a different type of breast cancer called more ERPR positive um, types of breast cancer. So the options for treatment is very limited. Should there be a late-stage diagnosis, it makes it all the more difficult to treat. But the good news is there are drugs in the pipeline that are targeted for triple negative breast cancer. So we are seeing um, better treatments in the pipeline and also um, better outcomes with the, well, anticipated better outcomes because of those treatments. So we are more likely to get the triple negative uh, breast cancer. I believe that's what Cheryl Flowers had. We're broadcasting from the Cheryl Flowers studio right. at KBLA Talk 1580. She was, of course, Tavis's beloved producer. But yes. what about in other areas of breast cancer? Are we more likely to get it, and what are the outcomes looking like? Yeah, I think the important thing is, A, knowing your family history um, and knowing if there are any women in your first line of relatives, like your mother or grandmother or aunt, that was diagnosed with breast cancer, especially at a young age. Um, also, being proactive, I know that the screening guidelines call for doing your annual mammograms at age 40, but I think from the moment we develop breast, we should be very familiar with the changes that happen uh, from a month-to-month basis, even if you're talking about young teenage girls. Because I have seen and, and know of young women who were diagnosed with breast cancer at 19 and in their mid-20s. Wow. And, so, and so often, if you know, I've heard stories, women also find a lump, but they go see a doctor, they get dismissed because the doctor says, oh, you're too young, it's probably just a cyst or, or nothing, you know. But, you know, it's your life and your health, and so if you know that something's not quite right, being persistent and being your own advocate is important, and if that doctor isn't particularly listening to you or wanting to make sure that, you know, is not anything serious or breast cancer, then I would find somebody else or another doctor to, uh, to work with who has your best interest in mind and not just being dismissive because, of, you know, you're, you're not of age yet to have breast cancer. But breast cancer can happen at any age, really, as long as there's breast. It, hamp- either, it happens in men also. Yeah, how common is that in men? Well, about 1% of the breast cancers are male breast cancers. So if you look at the statistics, not that significant compared to women, but it does happen. Now, you're saying we should be possibly considering mammograms earlier than 40, but what about the self-exams that are some doctors urge us to do? Is that effective? Um, yes, I actually discovered my lump on my own, and most women that I know um, who were diagnosed with breast cancer, it also happened the same way for them. So, again, um, while you're in the shower or in other situations, I think paying attention to the changes in your breast on a month-to-month basis is very important. So the main thing is a change, not necessarily, 
you know, a, a particular mass as much as a change from what your breast would normally be like? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between cyst and, you know, a, a breast cancer tumor. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I noticed that myself when, um, not to reveal too much personal information, but I have had a history of cyst. And when I noticed the, my lump, it did feel a little different than the cyst did. So that was a little bit of a cause for concern for me. And um, fortunately, I acted very quickly and was able to get in to see my primary care physician, and then things have unfolded from there. Um, but I think, you know, it, to do a self-exam is probably best to do it about the same time each month, um, just so that we can, you know, each of us can keep track of any noticeable changes that may occur. And what about the prevention side? I feel like maybe we spend a lot of time talking about medications and, you know, surgery and things like that. What about diet and stress management and exercise? How much of a factor is that in your opinion? Yes. So there's no surefire way to prevent cancer from happening, in this case breast cancer, but there are things that we can do that are within our control to minimize the risk. Um, Some of those things do relate to our lifestyle. You know, there's been research to link alcohol consumption with breast cancer or increase breast cancer risk. So being more mindful about that. um, Smoking can also lead to forms of cancer. Lung cancer is what we know is most popular. Um, But nutrition, yes. Physical activity, yes. And also lifestyle management are things that we can control that can minimize our risk of breast cancer as well as other types of chronic diseases. And again, I think knowing our family history is an important part of that equation, whether it's related to breast cancer or heart disease, hypertension, or any other types of chronic conditions. What about animal fats and sugars? These are the two Mm -hmm. things that a lot of holistic practitioners uh, cite as being problems for not just breast cancer, but many cancers. Other types. Yes. So when you think about the production of food, right, because I talk about, you know, Whole Foods isn't just a store. It's how we should eat. Um, And so when we think about especially meat and how meat is produced, um, in this country, there's a lot of meats that are or animals that are injected with hormones and antibiotics, and that leads to an increased risk of cancer and other chronic conditions, obesity being one. I mean, if you look at, unfortunately, the rate of childhood obesity, you can see an increase in that over the past five to ten years. And then also we know that uh, research has shown that for young girls who consume more meat products and even fast food um, items, that it not only propels them into puberty a lot sooner, but it also increases their risk of breast cancer by about 30%. When that That's happens. a huge jump. Yes. So we tend to see, because of that, we see girls, young girls going into puberty more so around age seven or eight, as opposed to maybe 12 or 13, which was the average many decades ago. Another reason to avoid fast food, I understand what you're saying. There's no way to absolutely predict. Otherwise, we'd probably have a cure 
But (laughs) all of these things that you're talking about, eating more whole foods, cutting down on animal fats, cutting down on stress, would help any kind of medical challenge that a person had. That is correct. Yeah, so again, it all boils down to nutrition, physical activity, and lifestyle management. So those are the sounds three hard, factors that we can't control. It's... Yeah, I mean, you know, it sounds simple, but it can be hard and challenging just based on, you know, we, we all have very busy lives and uh, often stressful jobs um, that may get in the way of being able to do that and being, you know, consistent with doing that. Um, I am... I am one of those people, but I do my best um, to practice what I preach and uh, make sure that I am doing the best at taking care of me and engaging in self-care. Yeah, I also think that it's hard or challenging, but it is something we control. We don't have to wait for a government rule or policy change. We don't have to wait for the Batman to come swinging down from a building, we actually can control what we consume in terms of food, in terms of media, whether or not we take a stroll around the block or remain sedentary. Not to be pointing the fingers, but just to remind us that this is something, an area where we have agency. We're talking with Rhonda M. Smith. She's the executive director of the California Black Health Network. And I want to look at this piece you talked about considering equity. How do we take it beyond a personal responsibility or our own role in terms of our bodies into this broader concept of what black health equity looks like? What is the work that you're doing that's moving the needle? What is the part that we are to play as change makers, as activists, as informed citizens. That's after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. <laughs> Heard any other talk radio lately that sounds anything like this? We didn't think so. You're listening to Unapologetically Progressive KBLA Talk 1580. She is the executive director of the California Black Health Network. Rhonda M. Smith is with me. Before we move on to equity, I do want to circle back on family history. You said it's important to know our family history. I have a friend who knew her family history, found out that she did have this um, gene, I guess you could call it, within her family went and got tested for some kind of um, DNA element, I believe, that makes you more likely to have cancer and had a preemptive mastectomy, similar to what we heard that Angelina Jolie did. It seems very scary, very extreme. Talk to me about why we need to know our family history and what do we do once we find out about it. Sure. Um, So in that case, yes. So she probably found out that she tested positive for the BRCA gene and uh, did what is referred to as prophylactic um, bilateral mastectomy, meaning that's one way to prevent breast cancer from happening by removing the breast. Um, And so 
Yeah, I think it's important to know your family history. And now with advances in technology, even with 23andMe, you can get your uh, you know health history or uh, sorry health makeup if you choose that option. So it's not just about your um, diversity makeup, so to speak, but you can also get information about your health and what things you may pre- be predisposed to as part of that. So it's one way that we can take control, be more proactive, understand more about our health and, and what we may be prone to happen, and just being more mindful to prevent those things from happening, um, given that information. So not to freak out, but just to say, okay, if I know this about myself, what can I do? Yes, exactly. And, and having a conversation with your primary care doctor or whoever your preferred um, provi- health care provider is that you work with as a partner. And I think the important thing is having a health care provider that you do have a great relationship with and can be a partner in the process of managing your health. So I love what you said about maybe getting a second or third opinion Uh, because this idea of doctors being dismissive is something I've heard over and over again interviewing black women. And then when I read about that happening to Serena Williams, I'm thinking to myself, if it happens to Serena, it definitely could occur anytime a black woman is interfacing with medical systems. So I love what you said about second and third opinions and empowering ourselves to be more authoritative than people in white coats in terms of getting the answers that we're looking for. Right, and exactly in that situation, perfect example of why it's important to advocate for yourself. And if knowing your body and listening to your body and knowing when things are not quite right, and in that case, that's exactly what Serena did, and God knows if she hadn't, what would have happened to her. But just think about, I'm sure you've heard of some of the stories here, um, about some black some of the black women who have unfortunately not survived their birthing experience, and uh, we know that we've had hospitals shut down because of some issues um, related to that. So, unfortunately, as medical um, technology and treatments have advanced, we still see those statistics, and still black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth, as well as about the same rate for black babies when they're born and also in that situation delivered by white providers. We There's research um, that was on CNN.com about three or four years ago that cited that outcome, unfortunately. Yeah, the research around black infants having higher rates of survival and thriving with black doctors was quite stunning because they don't know why. The scientists are saying they don't understand this, but that's what the data is bearing out time and time and time again. What do you make of that? Well, I I think, you know, caring for the patient is an important thing. And unfortunately, it goes back to one of the things that I talked about earlier about what happened. One of the good things that happened as a result of COVID is, you know, it kicked the door open and shed some light on the impact of racial bias and racism on the health and well-being of black and brown people. And so I think if we are caring for our own, we're more likely to um, listen, be more empathetic, and take things more seriously um, because of that relationship that we have and um, that connection. 
So, and then you know, have to think about how the healthcare system works, right? It really, unfortunately, it's more like a factory, and you're getting people in and out when your doctor is required to see 35 patients a day. You know, how can you spend quality time with any individual and really understand what is going on in that individual's life that may contribute to what the doctor sees when that patient shows up in an exam room? I say, you know, life really happens outside the four. Uh, Life and health really happens outside the four walls of any hospital, any clinic, or, or healthcare center. And so what a patient shows up with in an exam room may often be symptomatic of many, many other things right, that are happening in their day-to-day lives and not just, you know, the solution is not just throwing drugs at it, but really understanding what is happening in that patient's life and peeling back the layers of the onion to get to the root causes of their situation and health condition. Yeah, I saw something, a nurse was on Instagram, of course, I didn't independently verify it, but it made sense. She was saying there was a patient hitting her head in the hospital. Oh, yes. Yeah. They were going to do a psychiatric referral because a woman was hitting herself in the head. Turned out she had a weave, and lots of folks right. pat themselves was- <laughs> on the head when they have a weave. Exactly. And yeah, it's and that's what we talk about cultural competence, right? And so, if it were a black healthcare provider taking care of that person, mo- most likely they would have known. Oh, yeah, she's got a weave, and that's how she's you know taking care of the itch or whatever it is that she needs to take care of. Right. And so, but even still, it's just asking the question instead of making an assumption about an individual if you don't understand what may be happening in that scenario. But uh, a lot of times, jumping to conclusions rather than really understanding the situation happens more often than not. So, Rhonda M. Smith, let's take this from the micro to the macro. When you talk about equity and the work that you're doing, with the California Black Health Network. What does that look like, you know, for you on an organizational level and for us on the concerned citizen level in terms of moving the needle in the bigger picture? Yeah, well, I often say that I suffer from the Fannie Lou Hamer syndrome, meaning I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of talking about health disparities <laughs> and nothing really changing. And so when I think about the reasons why, when there's been many, many decades of research, programs, projects, um, interventions, and all of that, but we're still talking about it, and things are actually getting worse for the black community, why is that still happening? And again, you know, I, I say also that programs come and go, but policies make lasting change. And I think until we start to see more policies that are aimed at the system level, I mean, here in California, I think we've had uh, great legislation that's been passed, at least during my tenure here at the California Black Health Network. A lot of that has been focused uh, in increasing access to health care benefits at the individual level as well as community level. And now we're beginning to see, and we are focusing more on um, legislation that is targeted for making changes and breaking down those barriers and addressing the issues that exist within the system level. And so addressing you know, the system and, and the people that are providing care to um, black Californians and across the country is an important part of closing that gap and addressing health inequities. Um, and I don't think that we are going to begin to see any changes happen or the needle being moved if we don't address things at the system level. And again, getting to those root causes like the 
um, medical algorithms that I talked about, like what's being taught in the medical school. Um, So there's possibility to change some of that through policies and legislation that can be passed here. Yep. That seems to be... Go ahead. I was going to say, and one example of that is we were fortunate enough to be part of a coalition um, along with City of Hope, Cedar sinai the Latino Cancer Coalition here in California, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, and a few other statewide organizations in the cancer space to get um, legislation passed, and Governor Newsom, Newsom signed into law in September of 2022. Um, it's called the California Cancer Care Equity Act, and that is specifically targeted for uh, people within the Medi-Cal system, our version of Medicaid here in California. And so, unfortunately, we know that cancer outcomes are uh, better or worse, depending on the type of insurance that you have. We see worse cancer outcomes for patients within the Medi-Cal system than we do for patients that have private insurance. And so what this particular piece of legislation does, it, it gives cancer patients with an advanced or more serious cancer diagnosis who are within the medical system the opportunity to get the standard of care because sometimes, unfortunately, uh, patients in the medical system or with a certain type of insurance do not get the latest, most innovative therapy um, compared to what happens with privately insured patients. And so it gives them the opportunity to get the standard of care also get treated at a cancer center of excellence here in California, get access to genomic testing, precision medicine, and enrollment in a clinical trial if all commercially available therapies are not efficacious in their situation. So that would never happen in the current, situ- in the current way of uh, providing care for cancer patients within the Medi-Cal system. Policy. So we expect to seems... see, yeah, we expect, yeah, we expect to see better outcomes, you know, three to five years down the road for uh, cancer patients within the Medi-Cal system, and especially for black women who may get diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, as I mentioned earlier. Rhonda M. Smith is our guest. She's the executive director of the California Black Health Network. More straight ahead on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. We are talking about equity in healthcare, breast cancer, and how we can all work together to improve our outcome. Rhonda M. Smith is the executive director of the California Black Health Network. And, of course, the question is always, what do we do about it? How can we help you help us? Yeah, so, well, you know, we're a nonprofit organization, so donations and and financial support is always uh, appreciated and welcome. And I say, you know, we need to invest more in our own communities and, and the work that, you know, so many nonprofits are doing here across California um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a product or a service that we sell per se every day, but we do deliver value and have an impact in the work that we do thanks to some of the, the funders that have supported our work. But we're also wanting to, 
you know, engage the community around helping us solve some of the our, our own problems and getting engaged in that process. And one way is they can also tie to, you know, our organization. You know, tithing, tithing at church on Sundays is great. Tithing to nonprofit organizations that, you know, give their blood, sweat, tears, and heart every day to saving the lives of black Californians. It's also an important thing for our community to do and support. Um, and so we have our 40th anniversary event coming up here in L.A. on uh, Thursday at 6 p.m. Um, we will be honoring a lot of those organizations that are doing the, the hard work every day. And you talked about maternal health. So we are focusing on really on recognizing and uplifting and acknowledging all the great work that some of the initiatives here in L.A. have been engaged in to close the gap in black maternal health and infant mortality, such as the African-American Maternal and Mortality Initiative, um, the Perinatal Equity Initiatives, you know, Black Women for Wellness, the California Black Women's Health Project, Black Women Rally for Action. You know, we know how powerful black women can be when they come together to drive change and have an impact in our community. And so we really want to, again, uplift their work and and their legacy that they've created here in the L.A. area as well as across the state. Um, We'll be honoring some individual champions who've really dedicated their lives to helping to improve the health and well-being of uh, black Californians here as well. If we want to attend or support the event, how do we connect with that? Yeah, you can go to our website, that's cablackhealthnetwork.org, and go to the events tab. You'll see information about the 40th anniversary celebration event, and you can register directly through the the website. And, uh, yeah, or you can contact our office to get more details. But all of the information you need is, is available on our website and also information to sponsor the event as well as attend the event. And, of course, that's coming up on Thursday. When we come forward, we'll get some final thoughts, maybe calls to action from Rhonda M. Smith, Executive Director of the California Black Health Network. Appreciate all the information and all the work you're doing. It is encouraging to know how hard many of our nonprofits are working on behalf of black women, uh, the black community in general, and our well-being. This is KBLA Talk 1580. From our heart to your heart. Happy holidays to you and the ones you love from KBLA Talk 1580. The conversation continues right now now, now, with Dominique DePrima on First Things First. Dominique DePrima and Rhonda M. Smith, Executive Director of the California Black Health Network. And tell us again uh, the website, how to go to your Thursday anniversary event, and what you'd like to leave us with as far as marching orders this morning. Sure. So to register for the event, uh, you can visit our website. That's CA, as in California, abbreviated, blackhealthnetwork.org. That's CA, blackhealthnetwork.org. And so um, what I'd like to leave the community with who's listening in today is I think it's important for us to be empowered to be more proactive and take ownership of our own health and wellness um, and understand how to make the healthcare system work better for us and not necessarily 
let the idea of not being able to trust and the mistrust deter us from taking advantage of things that are available to us to protect our health and wellness. And so we're going to be doing a lot of work to help our community overcome that. We're going to be partnering with the California Healthcare Foundation around the How Do I campaign, and that is really meant to empower black Californians across the state to really understand um, how to exactly make the healthcare system work better for them and have a better experience and be more in control of that situation so that we can see, you know, better outcomes on the other side of that. So, And then you can support our work, again, by going to cablackhealthnetwork.org. cablackhealthnetwork.org. It's a great campaign. How do I, I think... When navigating the health system, even someone like myself who does news for a living and talk for a living, I've spoken with so many nonprofits. When it comes to our personal needs, sometimes it's hard to know where to start. Uh, We've got a couple of minutes here. Would you like to call out some other resources that people maybe should know about? I'm sure. So um, we are going to be, it's not available yet, but we are going to be kind of responding to some inquiries that we've had. We're going to be working on uh, developing a black healthcare provider directory, not just for physicians, but for a multidisciplinary array of uh, healthcare providers that are specifically more culturally uh, competent. Um, So that would include doulas, midwives, um, community health workers, you know, holistic providers, because we want to make sure and do our part that we are providing access to a network of healthcare providers across the state as part of us being the Black Health Network, making sure that people are connected to resources um, and connected to the, you know, whatever it is that they need to have a longer, healthier life. That's great stuff. And I'm pretty sure you're going to say that if Black health organizations want to be included in that directory. They could go to your network, uh, California Black Health Network website for info. Yes, and they can also become a member of the Black Health Network. Um, So we uh, broke 500 members a couple of weeks ago. We started from ground zero about two years ago. So please become a part of the the network so that we can all, you know, there's strength in numbers and we need to be working collectively as a community instead of in silos because we want to make sure that we're igniting a black health movement here across California so that the story that we tell, you know, three to five years down the road is a lot different than the story we're telling today about the disparities in life expectancy and across the board. Yep. Thank you. Rhonda M. Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Dominique. It was great to be here with you today. Tavis Smiley's up next. He's got a full lineup for you and a great show on deck, as always. My quote today, well, Sahara Ali says it all the time. I don't know who first said it. It is, focus on what you want, not what you don't want. I'm Dominique DePrima. History is now, and we are making it together. Don't forget to join me tomorrow for Talking Point Tuesday Until tomorrow, be well, be safe, one love.